welcome to episode 230 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So this is the point where I would normally insert some type of really clever pun about what we're going to talk about on this episode. But uh, I'm not going to do that. Or insert your own pun. Yes. Hashtag insert your own pun. (laughs) Even though maybe unless you've been tracking with us, you might not know what this episode is about. But I'm going to tell you, we're going back to the book cast. And we're once again in David Murray's excellent book entitled Reset living a grace-paced life, and we're pacing ourselves right now. I mean, we, we're doing this in kind of regular intervals. We've been trying to immerse ourselves, and that's why we're doing a series of episodes. And once in a while, we'll jump into another topic. But we're trying to keep in this idea of pacing because it's so countercultural. The more I think about it, the more I process it with you, the more we talk about it in terms of what David Murray is writing, the more I think Christians don't think of themselves often as paced individuals, especially those in the Reformed tradition. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll get into it, but I think you're you're probably right, is that we tend to be people who, for good reason, want to be achievers. We want to work hard and do our best to, to share kingdom values and to propagate the gospel and um, to honor God. And so a lot of that involves various kinds of tasks and work. Uh, so a lot of times we don't step back and think through whether that's even actually the right way to approach things and how do we balance all of that. So I'm excited to get into this a little bit and to sort of dig into this chapter uh, with you a little bit. And we'll be talking about chapter seven of his book, which is entitled Reduce. This is like the Marie Kondo yeah. of spirituality. Does it spark joy? Yeah, I will say that Marie Kondo is is somewhat of a heretic in my mind because what does she say? Like you should you should only ever have ten books or something like that. Does she say that? I think so. She says that like there's ridiculous. some ridiculous limitation That's on how ridiculous. many books you should have. And I was like, there the the limit does not exist. The limit does not exist. That's ridiculous. So, she's dead to me. Yeah, she's well, probably not like really. I mean, yeah. But dead that that statement that you should only me. have 10 books, that does not spark joy. So we should get rid of it, right? That's yeah, how it works. Unless she's saying like only 10 books on your nightstand. I can right. understand you might want to pare that down. No, not even that. <laughs> no, there, the <laughs> limit does not how, exist. I'm just how big of a nightstand do you have? Just get another nightstand. Just put it right next to that <laughs> nightstand. Just start stacking night. Mine, just like your nightstand, if it's like that, just get a bookshelf and put it next to your bed. So let me say something really quick before we get into the affirmations and denials. I, I have this dream. I know a fantastic woodworker, a carpenter who creates custom pieces. And I have reached out to him and said, I want you to build me some bookshelves. He's been like, yeah, of course, like we can make that happen. But the sheer opportunity of being able to design the perfect bookshelf or in multiple bookcases, like to fit in particular places has me so paralyzed at this moment because it perhaps might be one of the greatest opportunities of my life aside from my wife saying that she would marry me and spend the rest of her life with me. It's like, I, I'm going to have this bookcase and I get to design it. What does somebody even do with the opportunity? I know, I know. Here's what you got to do. You get a night a nightstand or like a <laughs> like an end table next to your bed, whatever it is. <laughs> the nightstand. And you, you design it. So it's basically like a Pez dispenser and you load it up with books and then you just like push a little button back and the book shoots out. So you That's just like cool. cycle the books through. I That's think that'd be a cool, sweet actually. design. 
Yeah. Have you ever seen those like old school handmade kind of like, uh, what do they call them? Almost like study aids. Like to be able to like see like 17 books open at the same time. It's like yeah. on a wheel you rotate it. Yeah. It's like a, what would you call that? Like uh what's the word I'm looking for? Like a paddle boat of books. A paddle boat. I would have gone with like a lazy Susan of books. <laughs> well, but it like, it goes over and under itself. You like know a saying? paddle boat. I see what you said. I see yes. what you did there. Yes. So anyway, <laughs> let's do a little affirmation and I let's do it. a little denial. So let's go negative first. What are you denying against? So th- this is, this is just a good general denial. And here's, here's where it comes in with my week. I'm denying over committing yourself or over commitment, which obviously ties in with our uh, chapter this week. But many of our listeners who I love dearly and apparently love us dearly, uh, messaged me on Wednesday morning to say where the egg is my reform brotherhood episode. <laughs> and the simple fact is, is that usually I edit the episode and get everything queued up and ready to go on Sunday evening after we record. And I just said, you know, I'm going to just not like, I'm just going to relax a little bit. I'm tired. I don't want to like do this right now. So I did that. And then all of a sudden Monday rolled around. I had a, a, something, a project I had to finish. And then Tuesday night, there was like a last minute emergency ETS committee meeting and then I was like, all right, Wednesday morning. And then it was like Wednesday morning, there was an early work meeting. So I'm sorry that the stuff did not get out on time. Uh, I apologize, dear listener who woke up eager to hear Jesse and I's sultry tones that were not <laughs> present. Uh, so I'm, I'm denying over committing because this is exactly what happens when you have too many commitments is first you kind of lose track of them. That's what happened this time is I had meetings and projects and commitments that I didn't even rec- like remember I had until my calendar reminded me. So by the time I, I realized that there was no time left to, to do the podcast, to edit the podcast and get it posted, there was no there was no way for me to like pivot and, and compensate. So that's my denials. And I'm denying overcommitment. And we'll unpack that more as we get into the, uh, the chapter here. So here's what people need to know. You do a great job at putting everything together and you're always on point with that. And this particular week, you actually texted me, I think, on Wednesday morning (laughs) and said, is it okay if the episode's a little late? And I believe my response is like, yeah, do whatever you want. I don't (laughs) remember when it comes out. I had no idea that people were on such a schedule. So loved ones, it's okay. It's okay. Tony was on it. He's always on it. Something. Here's the thing. I'm actually, I feel like people should know that if for some reason it doesn't come out on the Wednesday morning when they expect it. They ought to probably presume that something is really wrong. You've been kidnapped. <laughs> that That's like a better observation than just saying like, you know, what's going on? I was expecting to be here. You should be concerned, not that the episode isn't there, but that Tony's safety might be in jeopardy. You're going to get me swatted. Have, do you know what this thing, what swatting is? Have you ever heard of this? Like fly? No, no. So like in online gaming communities, like where they do like like live streaming, they'll do this thing called swatting where they'll be like in a game with somebody who is like beating them or is like a like an opponent and they'll okay. like call in a bomb threat to the building. So the SWAT team shows up. So they call it swatting. Seriously? I'm going to be like, like sitting in my office, drinking my coffee on a Wednesday morning, <laughs> very deliberately. Like, I'm just going to take this time and just like really get after the Lord in prayer. And the, the podcast episode can be late. It's going to be fine. And then like the windows are going to crash in and the SWAT team's going to arrive. Cause somebody, called the FBI and was like, Tony's got to be a hostage somewhere. Cause the episode didn't come out. Jesse told me to send in the SWAT team. So listen, loved ones, that's please your don't signal. call the FBI. If the episode's late, I probably just didn't plan my time. Well, no, that's your signal. It's only happened once in 230 <laughs> episodes. So that's how, you know, come after Tony. 
seek him out. Something has gone horribly wrong. All right. What are you denying? I'm also going to pick like an oldie, but a goodie, I think. And it, it's on the heels of our conversation last week because I was trying to look at social media, which for me is basically Twitter, through these eyes of what we talked about with respect to not answering the fool according to his folly. And so I'm denying against the need, it seems, on the part of some people to have only articulated thoughts. I just think it's okay. You can think something and not put it online. Yeah. So I'm denying against sometimes the need, even if you're invited sometimes, the need to respond to everything. It's really okay. We can feel sometimes an internal compulsion or conviction, but I think we even have to weigh out that conviction and try to understand what we're trying to achieve. It just yeah. seems to me that I know a couple of people, a handful of people that seem to really use Facebook in particular in a really profoundly lovingly Christian way. And it's odd to me that that is the exception. And we did talk about last week and people can go back and listen to that, our own perspectives and maybe our own shortcomings. But I was talking with my wife today and it seems about this, not just like that's an odd occurrence. I want to make it sound <laughs> weird like that. I was talking to her about this very thing. And it really just occurred to me something that you and I have talked about before. It was just so strongly and forcibly reiterated that the internet, I think, like generally in its normal position, plays so strongly to our sinful nature, the natural man, that you almost have to fight against that to exhibit what we might call like Christian ethics in interaction. And I just find that wild and so overwhelming at times that I think, my goodness, like we need a savior even in our interaction when it comes to online. So I'm just denying against all articulated thought. It's really okay to keep something to yourself. Yes. The twi Twitter, the Twitter, Twitter is like, um, the Twitter, Twitter is like uh, Captain America's super soldier serum. So one and of the I'm things gone. that people don't realize about Captain America's super soldier serum <laughs> is it doesn't just enhance his physical reality. It enhances like his moral, his moral life and his, his personality The the serum makes everything that's there like more intense and stronger. And so when someone else takes the same serum and it's an evil person, they're, they're even more evil. So like his arch nemesis basically gets the same serum, but is an evil man instead of a good man. And Twitter really is like that. Fa Facebook and Twitter, Facebook a little bit less because it really is more social. Twitter is kind of like this stream of consciousness thing, but the, the people who, uh, when they're in person might restrain themselves um, because they don't want to get punched in the face uh, or, right. or like sued or, or something really bad might happen to them. They're much more likely to be open and aggressive. And I found that the people on Twitter who are like gracious and charitable, it, it's like that's there in their regular life, but it's so much more pronounced. They're like, so they, they have this desire to be gracious and charitable. So they try so hard on Twitter that it's actually almost like a little annoying how gracious they can be on Twitter. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you're right. You have to be careful. And and I, I agree with you. Like there are lots of times that I read something on Twitter and I'm like, does anybody care about you saying this? Like why? <laughs> like the latest thing on Twitter is like, like saying that empathy is a sin. Right. Like, okay. Like what? Like, where did that come from? Right. And like, just because you had a thought doesn't mean you need to share it. And I'm sure, I'm sure exactly. I've been guilty of this in the we past. I probably was guilty of that at some time today. Um, but it, it just, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And my comparison mainly not to drag this out is that there, there's a woman that I attend church with who is, so I'm not even really on Facebook, but I know of her reputation on Facebook because my wife is there 
and uh, she'll, she'll share some of her posts and all the posts are basically about like what God is teaching her about God has revealing himself to her. It's always that way. That that's all that she writes on there. And I find that so refreshing that here's a person that just wants to share and she's allowing a look that's deep into her own processing of theology and devotion and obedience to God. But she's not out there necessarily to, in in other words, like even when she brings conviction, as I read some of her posts, she's bringing it indirectly because she's just testifying to what God is doing in her life. So it's almost like she's way more effective in calling attention in my own life to things where there might be shortcomings. Instead of addressing them directly or in this weird, like kind of just enigmatic way, just throwing something out into the ether. Here she is talking about what God is doing in her life. And that's just her consistent like modus operandi on Facebook. And I find that to be so, so lovely. So yeah. I want to be that person. She makes me want to be that person. Yeah. Be that person who's annoyingly charitable and gracious on Twitter. <laughs> be that guy. I wish I was that guy. I'm not. I, I'm fully aware that I'm not, but I wish I was. So we got that a, sanctification going on. It's a on, good though. word, Jesse. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, let's get into something maybe a little bit more upbeat, happy, positive. What do you have for an affirmation? So I'm affirming a podcast. Um, it's a little bit of an enigma to me at times because I don't I don't fully understand this person's theological uh, like pedigree. I don't, I don't really understand exactly what perspective they're coming from. And I I think that that's actually by design on this show because it's a show that's it, it's it's a distinctly Christian show. It's not like a seeker sensitive show, but it is really oriented to trying to trying to reach out to people who are um, maybe a little skeptical or not quite uh, decided on their faith. They're the the people who are kind of on the fringes. It's called the Ten Minute Bible Hour Podcast, and um, it, it's a pretty profound uh, project that this person has engaged on. He uh, let's see, he has done. Uh, 345 episodes on the book of Matthew, more or less, and he is only on Matthew 15. So wow. he, he keeps them pretty close to 10 minutes. And actually, in one of these last episodes, he realized that the topic was going longer than he planned, and he just cut the episode off halfway. So kudos to you for your discipline, sir, because that takes a lot to just be like, well, you know what? I'm going to just change course right now and we'll come back to this tomorrow. Um, but it's something we've never done. It, before. No, no. We just go to like the two and a half hour mark. I'm like, maybe we should like, no, let's keep going. Um, so it's good. It's actually really good exegetical work that he's doing. Um, it's fast. He's funny. He uses really good illustrations to kind of help you understand what's going on in the text. He does sometimes go into these almost like excurses where he digs into a particular historical element of the text. He did a whole series uh, when he was getting to the parable of the wheat and the tares. He spent, uh, I think, two or three episodes actually looking at whether or not this was a thing that people did. Because if it was a thing that people actually did, then it has a whole different force for the original audience than if it was some like legendary thing that nobody has actually ever known anyone have it having done. Um, but he actually concluded that not only was it a, a thing that was done, but it was actually something that was probably relatively common in the land of Israel at the time. So when, when Jesus says, you know, a, a, a person planted a, a wheel, um, a field and enemies came in and so tears, everyone would be like, oh man, that happened to my cousin. That really sucks. Right. right. So he's funny. He's engaging. He is, um, at times, it almost feels like he's 
engaging in a little self-skepticism, but I think he's doing that to sort of like step into the role of his listener and, and sort of build that connection with them. So it's very good. He's very insightful. He spends a lot of time working on exegetical things. Um, so I think it's a great podcast to listen to. Again, I'm not entirely sure what his uh, theological um, positioning is, but I do think that I think that's on purpose. I think he's done a really good job of being clear. I think he probably comes at this from sort of a, a MacArthur-ish, maybe not MacArthur because he's he's not really he seems to not be into MacArthur style Christianity, but I think his theological persuasion is probably sort of that like maybe sort of dispensational-ish Baptist uh, Calvinist kind of a perspective. He seems to have a relatively high view of God's sovereignty and God's working in salvation. Um, but he's really approaching it as just, here's what the text says. Here's how we understand Matthew. Here's how we dig into Matthew. He, we re- he, the goal of the podcast at this point is really to, to develop a mastery of the book of Matthew. Um, and I think like I said, 345 episodes, he's only on Matthew 15. So he's, he's a little over halfway through the book and uh, I think he's doing it. So check it out. It's a good kind of like, listen to it on your commute or while you're doing your morning run or bike, you know, cycle exercise or whatever. Cause it is pretty short. Um, and it's fun. It's a lot of fun. That's admirable, man. Any dude that's going to stick to that kind of strict structure and also like impound all this good stuff in there and be so disciplined. That's actually amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great show. And, you know, he um, he stays really close to the text. So he he really does spend a lot of time. And what I found helpful is he spends time explaining the background behind the text. So like when he gets to a section, the top, when he, he got to this, this sort of section that first starts to talk about not Herod the Great, but Herod, Herod Antipas. He went through a couple episodes exploring the entire sort of family tree of Herod, which is really complicated and difficult to get your head around. And it makes a difference. Um, he did one episode where he was talking about the difference between um, uh, the Gerasenes and, uh, you know, uh, Gethsemane or whatever it was. Like there's there's a right. couple regions. One of them's on the west side of um, the Sea of Galilee, and it's very much Jewish territory, and one of them's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, kind of the northeast corner, and it's very much Gentile territory. And how you understand where it is that Jesus is affects how you interpret the text. So he spent time going into you know, ancient Near Eastern literature and Greek records and Roman records about the different towns and how they were referred to. So he's very thorough. I mean, I'm very impressed with just the sort of the scholarship of it, but I think the most impressive part of it is he's able to distill this down into these little 10 or 15 minute chunks that is approachable and understandable to people who aren't necessarily Bible scholars. And, And there's things I hear that I'm like, I've heard this before, but he really explains in a way that makes it click and brings it home. So check it out. It's called the 10 minute Bible hour what is it called? The 10 minute Bible hour podcast. Um, he has another episode, another podcast he does with the guy from smarter every day, which is a YouTube channel. That's kind of like slow motion science videos. Um, that's pretty cool too. You can, I don't remember the name of it, but you can check it out. Um, but he's just a good winsome, genuine guy that I think just loves the Lord Jesus Christ and wants to teach about the Bible. He's done pastoral ministry in the past. I don't think he's doing that now, but, um, yeah, he, he, and he's very open about his own personal life. He, um, I guess he lost a brother in a, in a sort of unexpected uh, accident uh, at a young age that's really shaped him. And so there are places when you come into the text where 
like where Jesus has to grapple with death um, or where it seems like there's a, a, a point. The point of the text is the, the profundity of of death. He's very open and honest about like his own experience. So he's just very engaging and winsome. I really enjoy the show. It's it's. I look forward to hearing it every morning. The other day, I kind of had that experience where like it didn't update. And it was actually my podcast app wasn't updating correctly. But it was like, oh, my gosh, where's where's the 10 minute hour Bible Bible podcast or whatever it's called. I love it so much. I can't remember the name. That's okay. I'm at this point. I'm totally obligated to say again, what a time to be alive. I mean, mm-hmm. the word of God is a treat. I mean, it's, it's food for us. It is sustenance. It's also a treat. So it's just amazing that we can live in this day and age where you can pull up resources like this. Cause that's kind of my jam. I, I'm, yeah. I'm familiar with it by name, but now I'm definitely gonna check it up. You won me over because the idea of just being able to sink deeply, even just for a couple minutes every day yeah. into the word of God is such a treat. We should, we really need to be reminded over and over again. And I hope our listeners will listen widely. I think that's so important. We don't just listen to us. I'm sure people aren't just listening to us for love of God. Literally, please don't just listen to us. <laughs> but there's something beautiful about being able to listen to content that is like richly rooted in the scripture Yeah, and all of the background, all the scholarship, all of the connections, all the circumstances, all of the scenes that are taking place in the scriptures. There's something really, really beautiful about that. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesse, let's, uh, let's move on. What are you affirming tonight? Ironically, again, because our planning is close to 0% with respect to the actual topics, it's certainly with respect to the affirmations and denials. What's about to link our affirmations, ironically, is John MacArthur in a way that I totally didn't anticipate. So I'm affirming with an application that is brand new, just came out, I think this past week, but it's really a gateway. And that is, I'm affirming the LSB app. So LSB is the Legacy Standard Bible. And it's not a new translation of the Bible. It's basically a direct update of the NASB from 1995. And so the translators are going back. They're looking at all the original Hebrew, Arabic, and the Greek. They're double-checking everything for accuracy, but they're making some changes strictly around, I guess, providing greater consistency in the word usage and the accuracy of the grammatical structure, tightening some of the phrasing. I like the NASB for purposes of like exegesis and study. It is a wonderful translation. Hence, here we go with the MacArthur connection. Obviously, people know something about that translation. But you can now find the LSB in its own app. It's a really lovely, beautiful, intuitive app. It's got all the lexicon stuff that everybody would want and more. But I really just love that it's an updated version trying to tighten up that language and make it a little bit more contemporary without losing all of that wonderful, like rich, like brothy, stewed, crock-potted goodness from the NASB going back to like 1977. So that's why they call it legacy. It's not new. It's, it's continuing on in that legacy. So I'd encourage everybody to check that out if they have an interest or proclivity toward the NASB. Actually, if you just love God's word. This is like just another great version because this this is a free app. You can buy the printed version. They have it available right now in the Proverbs, Psalms, and the New Testament. But this is like, for me, I read mostly the ESV, but I like to kind of have this on the side. Like it's always on standby. And I love to, especially for like meditation purposes, go into the NASB. So I've been taking a look at the LSB because it's been such a blessing to me this past week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no translation is perfect. And every, I shouldn't say every translation, because some translations are trash and, and have no function or utility, but, but translations that are faithful, 
are not necessarily all one for one or thought for thought. There, there's a range of faithful translations that serve different purposes. And I think you're right. The NASB or now the LSB, um, it, it really is the best way to go for people who want to observe the features of the Greek and Hebrew text without, without having studied Greek or Hebrew in depth. And, and, you know, it's funny, I wrote an article today. um, I'm a, I'm a blogger for place for truth also. And I wrote an article about Romans 12, 10. And one of the things that I uh, observed is, you know, Romans 12, 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another and showing honor. And that, that showing honor and loving one another actually come to the front of the clause, which shows the emphasis. So they don't necessarily preserve the word order in the same way. They, I think they do try to preserve the word order, but by trying to translate uh, each word with as close of, an, of a singular equivalent as possible, they really do uh, try to preserve that, you know, as best they can. And so for, for people who want to do sort of exegetical studies, but haven't done Greek or Hebrew exegetical courses or learn the languages, the NASB, or I haven't looked at the LASB, I'll have to have to check it out. But those kinds of uh, super, I don't want to say hyper literal, because there are real literal translations, but right. more formal translations um, really are the way to go, I think. So yeah, this is a great recommendation. I'll have to check this out. Uh, they've got a nice website that, that talks about it. Um, yeah, I look forward to seeing this translation. So that's a great example. So I, I want to throw out real quick, I'm going to read Romans 12.10 from the LSB. And again, where this is basically what I appreciate about this is again, not a new translation. It's more about just providing some greater clarity and some greater consistency. So where there was none needed, nothing was changed. But here's Romans 12.10 in the LSB. And this will give you a sense of exactly what you're talking about. I consider it kind of like, this is going to sound pejorative, but I don't mean it to be the poor man's like understanding of Greek and Hebrew, because I don't have that kind of undercurrent or foundation of like the scholarship in those languages. So this allows you almost like a cheater education in it just by virtue of reading it. So here's Romans 12.10. And I think your paraphrase was right on, but... I've delayed enough. Here's Romans 12, 10, the LSB being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Yeah. So you can see already, like this goes actually exactly to your point of, if you were just to pull up that voice, you'd be like, wait a second, I'm clearly in the midst of a thought. It's not self-contained. This already pushes me back into the text, but the order of the verbiage here in English, and it's in the extent to which you're trying to exactly replicate word for word, gives you just a different order, a different way to thought and process this, and also to meditate on it. Yeah, and to go one further, I'm looking at it on the LSB website. The word being is italicized, so it's showing you actually that that word isn't in the the exactly. Greek text, because I actually struggled with how to how to uh, translate this and reflect on it, because the word devoted to one another, most translate most translations treat that as a command, right? They say love one another with brotherly affection or be devoted to one another in brotherly love or something like that. The word devoted is actually an adjective. So it's it's not commanding you to do something. It's describing the state of being, of being devoted, yes. right? So it's probably, it's, it's looking back at verse nine and it's saying, you know, this is let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, being devoted to one another in love. Like that's part of what it means to let love be genuine is to be devoted to each other, being devoted and then giving preference to one another, which is better than the outdo one another that I think has some, some grounding in the text. But yeah, the only way that I would, I would make this better is that brotherly love and, and honor should be put on the front of the clause. So it'd be like in brotherly love, 
being devoted to one another in honor, giving preference to one another, because those those two clauses actually are, are more important in each individual clause than the, the um, act itself. But now we're, we're way in the weeds. We, we should just like, yeah, we could we could just do a whole like, let's just geek out on this translation episode. We could. We should at some point. Again, file this under what a time to be alive. Mm -hmm. So I think this is by Steadfast, who's doing the printing here. So go check it out. I kind of, I'll admit to everybody, I think you and I have talked about this. I kind of have just a love for like physical Bibles. Like just the printing, the glossing, like I love all that stuff. So you can go check it out. There's many affordable versions. Of course, you can get it. And I think all the other crazy varieties like goat skin, blurg skin, Nazgul skin, whatever it is that you want it in, all those things are available to you. But LSB, I've really been enjoying it in this Wait, particular did, week. Did you say Nazgul sin? skin? <laughs> I just went right through that. I was wondering if you I, were just going to let that go I, or draw attention to it. I do want to make a clarification from our earlier implicit denial of Marie Kondo. She actually says you can only have 30 books. So, so just no, just no. Dead to me. No, 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 no. Just 30 books on your nightstand works out. <laughs> 30 books on your uh, currently reading list, maybe. That's true. I mean, we, we're going through a process of doing some spring cleaning, especially after coming out of COVID here and, and just being home for so long and having so being blessed with so many things, honestly. So we've been donating a lot we've been processing a lot of stuff. And I've just been telling my wife, you can't have too many books. You can't have too many guitars. Those are the two things. Unfortunately, they both tend to be heavy and take up a lot of space. Yeah. But that's why I'm about to get somebody to just build us more place to put them. So this is why I've discovered now is instead of this idea of saying, well, there's a natural constraint in our world, a.k.a. our house, because you can't have piles of books on the floor. Now I can just be like, oh, I know somebody that will just build more space for them. It's, this is not a problem anymore. No, you can totally have piles Boom. of books on your floor. <laughs> <laughs> I have piles of books on my floor all over the place. That's that's a totally normal thing to do, isn't it? I think so. I mean, we need some help from, I think, our listeners here to give us some feedback on that. We can't be the only ones. Yeah, I don't know. We can't be. And speaking of books, of course... This episode is all about the bookcast. We're back in this book again. Reset. <laughs> nice. By David Murray. Nicely again. done. So I feel good. like we're... I feel like on like Wayne's World where it's like, we're not worthy. <laughs> we're that's like that was like a top shelf. Like that was a million dollar transition right there, Jesse. Listen, I'm trying. I'm just trying to keep up with you, brother. I just wrecked uh, it. We should ask, or I should ask, not we, because that'd be weird you'd be asking yourself. Where is this book hanging out right now? Is this on your desk, on the floor? Where does this thing float around? I mean, technically, it's it's a non-material oh, that's commodity because right. we're you're doing Kindle with Kindle. Me. My Kindle usually sits on my desk by my computer because that's where I charge it. Yeah, fair enough. Well, yes. we're in chapter seven, and in David Murray's theme, he's calling each of these chapters repair bays. So technically, this is repair bay seven, and it's about the subject of reduce. And once again, I feel like David Murray's a little bit sneaky because I came he into is. this chapter thinking, all right, I've seen some Marie Kondo. I know something about hoarders. This, <laughs> let's see where you go with this, because I feel like I know enough about this topic where you're going to give me, to some extent, the cliche things. And he really starts with this idea that he pulled from a New York Times article by David Brooks, where Brooks says there are basically two ways of thinking about life, the well-planned life and the summon life. 
And he starts out the chapter by almost appropriating those ideas in a spiritual sense and saying, which or both are they Christian? And what is the proper approach with respect to these two different emphases on how to plan your life? Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of different uh, hermeneutical matrices or rubrics that you can use to kind of assess what he's talking about in this. He's talking about, uh, you know, something from a particular book that was like, do now, want to do, you know, do later and then do not right. do or stop doing. There's also something that I like to use called the Eisenhower matrix. Have you heard of this? I have. Right. So the Eisenhower matrix is a, it's a quadrant system. So you draw basically a plus sign and that creates four contracts. Uh, quadrants and on one axis uh you have you'll have to look this up obviously but you have urgent less urgent or not urgent and then you have important and not important and so you'll end up with a quadrant that is urgent and important which is in the top left and those are the things that you do when you do them right now and then you have something that's important but not urgent meaning mostly meaning not time sensitive uh, that's the next thing you do are the important but not urgent things and then you have the not important but urgent things which we talked a little bit about last week things like the push notifications on your phone are designed to be urgent but they are the furthest thing away from important usually, uh, which you, you might do. I mean, you have to clear the notifications out on your phone. You have to clear junk emails out of your inbox at some point. Um, those are the things you do last, or you do that when you, you don't have enough time to do something urgent and important or urgent and not important, uh, or sorry, important, but not urgent. And then the last quadrant is the things that aren't important and aren't urgent. And you just don't do those things. So, so there's lots of different rubrics to use. The only reason I go through that is because you know, there's a lot of different ways that these things work or don't work for people. So it's important as we read through this to recognize that the particular method that he is proposing may not work for everyone, but the principles that he's he's proposing actually do work and can work for everybody. But you may have to do a little bit of groundwork to kind of find the, the, the rubric or the hermeneutic principle to sort of assess the different categories of things. Right. That's helpful because I think what he's after here is this sense of like first principles in forcing us to understand and evaluate how we approach the things that we need to do in our lives and even to assess whether or not they're important enough to actually do. This is a really tough question. And the reason why I think it's appropriate for our conversation in our podcast is because we've basically long made the case that Reformed theology is the the most appropriate, the most comprehensive, the most accurate systematic compendium of what the scriptures teach. And in that compendium, in that omnibus of reflection of all the theological truth and goodness that the scriptures represent to us given by God, that there is always a practical outworking, always. And so sometimes there's a tendency to kind of push that aside, but he keeps pulling us back into that. And so in some ways, the dichotomy he's expressing here is the difference between proactive and reactive approach yeah. to life. He settles somewhere almost in the middle. Actually, he's more weighted toward this idea of the kind of planned life. But the first thing he says in this chapter that really gave me pause is he says, and I'm going to just quote his words. Mr. Murray writes, based on the truth that we are made in the image of God and therefore are called to reflect to some degree his purposeful sovereignty, I believe that every Christian should build on the firm base of a well-planned life, end quote. Now, again, talk about being inundated with a truth that we find comfortable, that God is sovereign, Yeah. but he's taking it to a different level. And the level is actually, it's more microcosmic. He's pushing it back into how we view our days. 
And I found that to be something that's very challenging. So in other words, it's not that we're to try to reflect all the sovereignty of God. And yet at the same time, it is to say, like, how thoughtful are you about what you do? And just in setting what it is your objective. In other words, like, I think maybe it's appropriately encapsulated in this idea of pursuing your calling, not your potential. But that begs the question, how many of us have actually taken the time to understand what our calling is? Not like even like capital C, I was going to say large C, like capital C calling, but like small C, day to day. We just don't consider that stuff because it floats by us because we get reactive with everything that's happening in our lives. I found this like crazy challenging. Was was I the only one? Like, did that strike you at all? No, I, I have that same passage highlighted actually because it, it's in one in some ways it's a really bold claim, right? It's like it's like it right is. in your face, right? Um, and David Murray is not known for his uh, provocative uh, speech and and writing. He he's much more known for kind of being a gentle soul and for kind of just good Puritan style, you know, discussion and and theology. And this actually makes me think, and I'll read it out of the newly discovered LSB uh, Bible here, Uh, but it it calls my mind to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and following. It says, therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming Mm -hmm. the time because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Right? So so the point of that, that verse is... In some ways saying, look, don't just wander around like the world does. Don't 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 right. walk the way that the unwise do. And I think what, what David Murray here is saying, and I actually think he's he's right on, is that wisdom cannot be entirely reactive. There's an there's an element of wisdom that involves understanding how to react to circumstances and stimuli that come your way, right? Because we can't control everything. We reflect God's sovereignty by being a planning people, but we are not sovereign the way God is sovereign. Right. But what I really like about this passage, and I think something I actually wish he would have maybe brought a little bit more into the forefront, is on account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So part, I think, of, of living this well-planned life that he's talking about, which is is a secular uh, secular books sort of breakdown that he's kind of borrowing. But part of living this well-planned life is understanding the moral implications of God's law, because we're not called to understand the secret will of the Lord, right? But we're called to understand the moral principles and the, the moral will of the Lord and then act accordingly. So I also think, you know, if, if given the situation between planning a course of events and, and engaging and, and executing that plan and just sort of like reacting to, to things and circumstances they come our way, we are far more likely to react in a sinful way when we're caught off guard than right. we are to plan a sinful course of action. Obviously, a lot of sin involves some level of premeditation, but it's not, it's not usually the case that like I wake up in the morning, I'm like, all right, well at this time I'm going to have this opportunity to sin. And so that's part of my daily plan. Most, most sin in the life of a Christian is sort of like reactive sin where we, we, an opportunity or a temptation kind of confronts us or assaults us. And we, we give into that, that temptation, not all, but most. And so I think what he's saying in a sense is also like, we have to take control of our life. We have to have a plan. We have to execute a plan because God is not a God who just sort of lets things happen, right? He has a plan. He executes his plan. We're called to reflect the same thing. And so right. part of that, I think, is 
is knowing and understanding the will of the Lord and being able to act in accord with that is really important. And, and this is this is the biblical principle that Ephesians is getting at here, that Paul's getting at in Ephesians. Yeah, that's that's right on because one of the things that strikes me about what he's saying is all I can do is kind of liken this to how I've been reading recently about how when we decide upon something, we decide we're, we're going to be this way, that it, something that we decide on represents the essence of who we are, then the behavior tends to flow naturally out of that conviction or that establishment. So for instance, you know, it's difficult for many people to lose weight to go on a diet because dieting is challenging, right. particularly because so many foods that are not good for us are super delicious. I think we can all agree on that. So I, I was thinking this way my, this week myself as I was trying to avoid some carbs that I didn't need. And yet, I don't know if anybody's ever had carbs before, but they're super <laughs> delicious. So it's very difficult to make that commitment. And some of what I've been reading is really fascinating with respect to like the philosophy of identification. So if we identify ourselves, for instance, if you want to be the kind of person that like exercises that we've been talking about here or goes for a run or goes for a bike uh, ride, then not just goes for a bike, but goes for <laughs> using the bike, then uh, it maybe is better to start with thinking about who is the kind of person that has like impounded that into their life. Yeah. So it's better to think that way and identify yourself as that person. And therefore the working of the activity and the actions follows along with that identity. In some ways, I think that's kind of like what he's saying here. And what strikes me about what you just quoted, and I love that you're using the LSB, is that when we talk about this idea that the days are evil, they're evil not because we know that God has created our days. So how can it be that God has created our days, numbered our days, has created all things, gives us new days, gives us new mercy every day, and yet the scriptures say these days are, are evil? It's because is it not that they tend to be filled with our selfishness and our reactive abilities to process what's going on in the world outside of our identity in Christ, which again is another theme that he draws us back to. So this idea of redeeming the days is in some ways modeling the redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. But that takes a certain amount of planning and identity that to be in Christ is not just to have this grandiose title of being able to receive the benefits and the favor of God, which is true, but it's also minute by minute on Monday morning to be able to be satisfied in Christ and to be resolute in what he requires of us and committed to him so that we are always looking for the opportunity when sin approaches us, when temptation befalls us, to find the exit which God has also appropriately provided. But that takes a certain amount of planning, at least in its commitment. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, David Murray, I'm, almost, I'm like we're on a first name basis now. Dr. <laughs> Murray, um, he, he kind of goes on to talk about now sort of like, how do you do this, right? So he, he wants us to start by sort of identifying basically like a mission statement uh, for our life. But then he says like, but doing an overall mission statement for your whole life is almost too big of a task. And he says, either it's so broad that it's not useful in any particular situation, or it's too narrow to be applied broadly to every situation. So right. it's, it's important, he says, to sort of break this up. So he, and I thought this was really interesting. I was actually a little bit surprised with this. He breaks it up uh, into four different areas. And he, he says to do, do it, these are in not only these four areas, but this order of priority. He says you should break it up into spiritual life, family life, 
vocational life and Christian service. And he acknowledges that these things are not fully independent of each other, right? How you treat your family is, is going to affect your spiritual life. What you do for a profession is going to affect how your family functions, etc. Perhaps your vocation and Christian service are intertwined with each other. But he says to do these things in that order. And I thought that was really helpful because I think, you know, I used to think I've seen other similar lists of like ranked priorities and it's always like God, family, job, and then like everything else. But like, that's almost too, um, too broad. Like what, what does it mean to have God as the first priority? Does that mean you, you, you never do anything for your family until the church tells you, yeah, we have no more, we have no more needs. The church is totally taken care of. And so I appreciate that he kind of broke this up in saying like, well, first you have to take care of your own spiritual life, right? You put on your own mask before you help put on the mask of the person next to you. And he's saying like your spiritual life really has to be of paramount importance because if you're, if spiritually you're off kilter, then you're not, you're not really all that much used to your family. And if, if you're, family life's off kilter, then you really shouldn't be focusing too much on like your career and your job. You really need to get your family in order. And I love that he put Christian service last. And I think this is really something that I think most people in our audience would be, would think is really counterintuitive. Right. But he ties that into two different things that I thought was, was really interesting. His, his first thing was sort of this Puritan-esque, um, Protestant work ethic style thing where he, he makes the point that your your spiritual life and your family life and your vocational life that's all service to God. So so even before you get to this fourth priority of Christian service which he's he's defining kind of as like I think it's broader than like volunteering at your church but it's kind of like the work that you do the tasks that you do in in direct service to the church or in direct service to other Christians around you. So so something like um leading a Bible study or teaching Sunday school. That's kind of what he has in mind. Um, He might include something like bringing in your, you know, like shoveling your neighbor's driveway explicitly as a way to like share the gospel or, or general evangelism. That's all wrapped up in that, but he's making the point. And this is what I think is important. I think a lot of us need to hear those things are good, but they're not the only way to serve Jesus. All of the other things that fall into those previous three categories. And I think if, if the audience comes away with one thing from this, those things are service to God too. So, so a lot of times I think some of our burnout and our overcommitment comes from this idea that we have to add on top of all of the other stuff we're doing, these kinds of acts of Christian service. So I know that I'm exhausted because I worked a 40 hour work week. I know that I'm tired. I don't have kids, but I'm using this as an example. I know that I'm tired because the kids have been hard to, hard to get to go to bed on time. And, you know, I'm, I've been tired because my wife wants to stay up and talk because we've been trying to take care of the kids or the dog or the, the house or the chores or whatever it might be. All of those things that you're doing, they can be very exhausting. And now trying to add some sort of act of Christian service on top of that can be just the the straw that broke the camel's back. So I love that he points out the fact that we don't need to add those things because caring for our own spiritual needs, caring for our family and ministering to them, not in this weird, like the, the, the father is the priest of the family sense that's popular in some of the patriarchal circles, but ministering to our family in terms of the kind of spiritual leadership that a husband is called to, or that a mother is called to over her children, that kind of thing is service to the Lord. And then living out and working hard and doing a good job in our vocation, whether that's a so-called secular or a so-called sacred profession, 
both of all of those things are service to God. So if at the end of all of those priorities, we don't have the energy or the time or whatever it is to now add another act of Christian service on top of it, that's okay. And I think it was really, it was really refreshing to read that when I realized what he was doing, there was almost a, a sigh of relief. It's like, oh man, yeah, that's, that's actually a really nice thing to hear that we don't need to continue to add more. That sometimes just living a quiet life and working with our hands and minding our own business, that's actually a biblical command. So adding something more to that isn't, is not necessarily necessary in order to be honoring the Lord. Well, and this is what we'd expect, right? From a grace-paced life. Right. He, he goes on to talk about how he basically, even in setting his own schedule, goes at about 80% because that allows him some margin to handle all the vicissitudes of life, all of the unexpected things that might come up. Not, I think, just by way of, well, here's a task that, that you know, the car broke down, it needs to be fixed, and so I need to schedule some time to make that happen, but more for those opportunities to serve others as they just naturally arise in life. This is a biblical concept. We've, I think, just moved away from it. We've instead sometimes put the service up front because sometimes I think we have this idea that we can fake it till we make it. Yeah. That the best thing that we can do is like, well, let's sink ourselves into these different duties, not because we find them meritorious with respect to our salvation or they themselves are selfific in any way, but because somehow this will help us to love God and others more. And yet the irony is going back to my affirmation last week with the tender heart by Sibs, we should really, it's almost, I think what he's saying here is like, we should fall. If you want to do work, we should fall on our knees first and ask that God would give us an intense love for his son and appreciation for his gift so that the service of our, you know, others and the reflection of salvation in our works would be because we love Jesus so deeply that we are compelled to that kind of obedience because of who he is and what he has done. So even Paul, again, quoting in Philippians 2 here, when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory. So of course, forsake this idea of drawing attention to yourself in ways that does not produce a legacy of faith, of true intent and attitude that is in service to God. But going on, he says, but with humility of mind, regarding one another is more important than yourselves. Here's the important part not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So I always find that fascinating and that comports with what he's saying here, not only for your own personal interests. In other words, he acknowledges that looking out for your personal interests. And what is he talking about here? He's talking about the will of God for us, which is our sanctification, but then also for the interests of others. If we get that messed up, if we twist it around or put the cart before the horse, whatever cliche you want to use, it's possible that will never end up actually doing service for the right reasons. And it will not be efficacious with respect to the attitude that God desires for us, because it's, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I'm sure you have, because I've thought about this from time to time. It's possible that God will bless our work. And again, this is work in the sense that we're not doing it to earn something from God, but merely because we recognize that we owe in some ways a debt to God but that it's possible to do this work and for God to bless that work. And yet at the same time, because our attitude is not right, that he is not blessing us in that work, that somebody else is being blessed, Yeah. but that we ourselves are not receiving the fullness of that blessing because we have not first sought to take care of ourselves by way of our spiritual interests. So the thing that I think is really impactful with what he says is when it comes to the spiritual component, he says, basically we do not set 
spiritual growth goals. We don't actually articulate or take time to emphasize or define in our own lives what it is that we want to grow in spiritually. And he says, you just ought to do that. Even simple things like, I want to do less of this and I want to do more of that. So he, might, he I think he uses an example like, I want to, by the grace of God, put to death lust in my life. I want to, by the grace of God, uh, you know, seek more diligent and loving and rich prayer time. We just don't set those goals. It struck me that'd be useful for me to write that stuff down to say, at least in my own life, I want to make a commitment to this in so much as God, but the power of the Holy spirit will manifest it in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, he moves on and, and maybe we can take a little bit of time just to sort of talk through how we do this or how we are going to do this in our lives. But he moves on to sort of point out that like all of this talk about a purpose and, and being intentional about what we do and sometimes stripping away things that we need to stop doing. All of this is kind of for naught if we don't actually build a plan to do it. And so he, he talks about like some of the things that he does. He he schedules every task he has into his schedule, which is is something that I actually do as well. So so he um, he if he's asked to write an article or you know, prepare a a speech or something. He not only puts the speech date on his calendar, but he puts on his calendar that the amount of time he thinks it's going to take to do it. And then he actually puts that on his calendar and dedicates that time. If one of his goals is to spend more time with his son, well, that's a fine goal. But if you don't actually put time on the calendar to spend more time with your son, then that's, uh, that's not going to work. And it's funny. I actually had a similar experience with this where a, a few years back, um, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I forgot to call my mother on Christmas Day, right? And I'm sure it was just things got busy and it just slipped my mind. Christmas was never like a big holiday growing up in my family. So I, I guess it, it probably thought like it's not that big of a deal. Well, after when I finally got a hold of her, she was very hurt by the fact that I didn't call her on a holiday. And so I said to her, well, do you want to just plan a regular phone call on such and such a date and such and such a time, like every week. And her answer was like, well, I don't want to plan it. Like, it seems so like, uh, I can't believe I have to be like a scheduled item in your, in your calendar. That makes me seem like so unimportant. And I said, actually, it makes you seem more important because only, the only things that get on my calendar are the things that are important enough for me to remember to do. So he talks about that. He also talks about how like he shares a calendar with his wife. And so when, when they are planning something, they observe each other's schedules to make sure they're not overwhelmed or overbooking their time or, or overriding other kinds of things. And so some of these things I think are important to just talk through. And again, this is one of those things where like his method is a good example for us to look at, but not everything he says is going to work for everybody. So we have to sort of like adapt what he had, what he, he does. It's funny. We did an episode. I want to say it was like episode seven or eight uh, with Matt Butts on time management. Yes. And and one of the things we talked about in there was just like, you have to do it. You have to have time management. Right. So, so maybe I'm putting you on the spot, but what are some of the things you do to like manage your own time in terms of like setting aside time for what's important? How do you manage that? And maybe you don't, I don't know. Maybe like, <laughs> maybe this is like that moment where we realize like both of us are terrible at this and we need to repent in ashes and stuff. But well, I suspect that you're probably not bad at this because I know you pretty well. I, I think you might be better at it. What's funny is when I was reading this chapter, I was actually thinking of you because nobody else will be able to appreciate this in the same <laughs> way, but I've seen your calendar, yes. your Google calendar, and you do have everything mapped out. And part of that's because you've done a really good job of like 
basically syncing up a bunch of different applications that will allow you to do that kind of planning and also make it dynamic so it learns over time and it gets better and better. So I do admire that. For me, it's what I've been trying to grow in is saying no. He talks a little bit about that here. No really is the key. And I, I have an ongoing joke with a really good friend of mine how we both just cannot say no when anybody asks us to do something for the church. Yeah. And we need to get better about that. And I've been trying to do that. And it's no has just been always been an ugly word because we have this sense that as Christians, we ought to do everything that everybody asks us, especially if it's associated with some kind of missional purpose. And the bottom line is that's not healthy. So for me, I do try to plan a lot of things in my calendar and I am a person of habit. So I think that in so much as I can set aside regular times of prayer and Bible study and rest Uh, trying to like forsake. So for me, like the weekends, I try to make them sacrosanct. Certainly the Lord's day is, but I also try to do that with Saturday because we just really need to do other things besides the work that we do. And then spend that other time, which we would have spent on normal work in God's word as if that is our great work, because really it is. So my calendar, I'm not as good at laying everything out, but you know, like one of the things that we do is like you and I make a commitment to this podcast and I think we went back and forth today with like four or five scheduling times <laughs> because I was, I wanted to fit it in, in a place where we could devote some time to it, but we always put it on the calendars, right? right? Like even this podcast, we don't leave it to chance. We know that we want to do it. We know that's part of what we feel is part of the rhythm that God has called us to in right now. And so we do that and we are very particular about that, but that's also because you and I have had conversations about the fact that this is one of those things that we prioritize that it's valuable, profitable, and that in terms of the community of believers that interact with us, this is something that is of high importance. And so therefore it goes on the calendar. And so I think your point of saying, let's not be, let's not dismiss too quickly that even like seemingly personal mundane things like having dinner with the family or your devotional time or prayer time, if it's on the calendar, now is it that make you more committed to it? But if you share that calendar with other people or with colleagues yeah. or with your family, then it means that they can't overwrite that. I, I read something recently that was fascinating because it said it was, I can't remember the company now. Actually, this was a couple of weeks ago, but this uh, CEO, it was a startup. It was like a, a tech firm. They were saying they don't allow other people to schedule meetings for you. So in other words, if two people want to have a meeting, they have to come to agreement that they want to have that discussion and they schedule it together because the thought was that nobody else should be able to demand something of your time. Yeah. And I found that very interesting. This idea that like really the only person who can demand our time is God himself. And so we ought to plan better for our time, but not to succumb to all these other demands that might pull us away from the central matter. So for me, I love the scheduling. We do a lot of that together. Like you can see my calendar. My wife and I do share a calendar. Like for me, Google Calendar is pretty right. fantastic. Yeah. And you you use a lot of plugins. I don't know if maybe you want to go back to, I know we talked about this before, but like share some of those quick because yeah. your calendar is fed from a lot of different sources, which some people might think, well, that just seems overwhelming to me. I don't want to plan every second of my day because it seems like it's too rigid and it's the opposite of this idea of resetting. But I think you're an example of how you use that in such a way where it brings liberty. 
Yeah. So I, I use a number of things and this won't work for everybody for a number of reasons, but, and there, there are lots of different apps and programs that do similar things, but I have, um, two things that feed into my calendar that I think, uh, are really, really essential. And actually uh, it's funny because one of them, I did like a re reset, excuse the pun, but like I did a reset on it to kind of clean it up a little bit. And so what I did is I delayed like the start of all these tasks, these repetitive tasks that I do every day or every week to like April 1st, just to have like a clean calendar. And then I realized like I was missing a bunch of these tasks. Like I was just forgetting to do them because they weren't on my calendar. So I use, um, I use Google calendars. I also have a program that's called uh, SkedPal. And what SkedPal does is you give you you feed your calendar into SkedPal. So it blocks off your, your appointments and things like that. Um, and then uh, I use Asana to generate the tasks and SkedPal reads them. And then I tell us I tell SkedPal how much time I think each thing is going to take. And so I have everything from how much time I think this chapter of such and such a book is going to take me to read. I have a whole other mechanism that uh, that I use to figure out how long it's going to take me to read things. That's way beyond this podcast here. Um, you know, all the way from that to like I have comic books that I want to read, movies I want to watch. Um, so, so what then SkedPal does is it takes all of that and use an algorithm to slot those things in based on the due dates, the time that I say I want to finish them, the amount of time I say it's going to take and my calendar, it fills in those things into the calendar. I actually have it programmed. So it adds a 30% buffer time to my estimates to create that extra space for when, you know, something takes longer or I, I get a flat tire on the way to work or whatever it is. I also use an app called Emma.ai, which reads my calendar and then uh, adds drive time to uh, to the events uh, to block that off on my calendar. And I think, you know, this can be this can be done in a very much automated way like I have, uh, or you can do a lot of this stuff manually. One of the things people might not realize if you enter an enter an address uh, and ask for directions from point A to point B on Google Maps, there's a little option that allows you to uh, say what time you want to arrive or what time you want to depart. And then it will give you another option that lets you add that drive time directly to your Google calendar as long as it's more than 15 minutes. So you can add that drive time to your calendar manually. That takes a lot more finicky doing it, you know, each time kind of thing. But what I found is that this rather than it's it's funny because sometimes I'll explain to people how I manage this. Um, I developed like this whole reading tracking process that breaks books into chapters and projects out how long it's going to take. And then I use that to generate these things. They look at it and they go, man, that just be really must be a lot of like that must be really burdensome to manage all of that. Well, yeah, at first it's a lot of heavy lifting to get it all set up. But once it's all set up, then all I have to do, like, for example, um, I'll just look at my SkedPal. It tells me that we're going to be recording right now. And then it tells me um, that the next thing I should do is read a chapter of a book I'm reading. And then I'm going to watch. Apparently, it thinks I'm going to watch the rest of Captain America Civil War with my (laughs) wife tonight. Um, You know, it can tell me tomorrow what I'm going to do. You know, and you can set up time maps on it. So I I don't want to read comic books on the Lord's Day so I can tell the system this particular task or these particular tasks are not uh, not schedulable on Sundays. And so it'll automatically do that. And like I said, I don't want I don't want people to think that like this is the only way to do it. A lot of this stuff you could do with a pen and paper, sit down and write your week out or make manual tasks on 
um, on Google Calendar. You can use Asana, which is a task management platform. You can synchronize that to your calendar. So it'll put the tasks, uh, it'll create a calendar item on the day that a task is due. And then you can move, you can modify that calendar item and move it to where you want to do it to block out that time. So there's a lot of ways that you can get this done. But I think the principle is you just have to actually have a plan. You have to actually do something right. to make sure you're setting aside time for all of this stuff. Whether it is, you know, something silly like watching a Marvel movie with my wife on a Saturday evening, or whether it's something like reading my Bible every morning. I have a repeating task in SkedPal that every morning there's a 30 minute block set aside that is for Bible reading. And if I, if, if there's not enough time for that, I get a big warning saying, Hey, you have this thing on your calendar that you've indicated as a high priority that you want to do every morning. There's not enough time. What do you want to do? And then I'm faced with a choice. There's a little module in the phone app that you curate your day. And when there's not enough time, you triage it. And it says, click on the things that are less important than this thing. And then it, it'll rearrange everything. So you do that every day. And he talks about some of this stuff, right? He's, he's doing this in a very sort of like manual analog way with shared calendars, which is fine. But he also talks about the importance of going back and auditing this, right? If you think, um, here's a good example. If you think that this book is going to take um, 20 minutes per chapter to read. And so you plan to finish it by next week. There's seven chapters. You're going to read it for 20 minutes over the next seven days each day and finish the book. But it's actually taking you 30 minutes to read each chapter. Well, then you're going to run into a crunch when you think you're going to be finished by a certain time. So he talks about tracking that. You and I have, have bounced back and forth on what kind of time logging apps to use. I'm using a, a, a web app called Toggle right now, which suits my needs. Um, we've both tried out this app called a tracker, which has some other kinds of goal setting features and things built into it. I mean, there's, there's a thousand time logger apps out there for both, uh, Apple and Android. You just look up time logger and some of it is just sort of figuring out what kind of features you want. The best one I ever used for Android was called Jiffy. Um, if, if people are looking for something good for Jiffy, uh, or for Android. And then he also talks about building margins, right? So if you think something's going to take 30 minutes, block it off for 40 minutes on your calendar. What's the worst that's going to happen? It takes 30 minutes and now you've got 10. And he's, he makes a joke like, what's the worst that's going to happen? I have a little bit of time to go fishing. But like, that's the reality. Maybe I have time to sit, not right now because, you know, COVID, but maybe I have time to sit at Starbucks and drink my coffee in a leisurely fashion instead of trying to gulp it down while I'm driving to the next thing. Maybe that's the worst case scenario if I build a little bit extra margin. To some, there's no doubt that this is going to sound absolutely crazy. Everything you just said with trying to plan everything out and even by way of some people's personalities, it might say, oh my gosh, this sounds so restrictive. Yeah. The point that Dr. Murray is getting after here, I've gone back to doctor now because I found like I was <laughs> too, too informal with him. The point that Dr. Murray is getting after here is that we really need to have a little bit more margin in our lives. And he's basically employing like what we might call like a zero budgeting approach. Right. What he says is look to your calendar first before you accept something with the idea that it takes time. Yeah. If you can commit it because there's space in your life, go ahead and do that thing. If you cannot, then you ought to at the very least give pause and consider it in a very disciplined fashion. And maybe you should just say no and that's okay. Right. So I love that that's where he's really pushing us back to is this idea of 
look at your calendar and see if it's even possible for you to fit it in. Like that seems like such a logical and obvious advice, but often we approach it from the other way around and we say, oh my goodness, this seems like it's, it's an important thing. I have to do it. I really should do it. But what if we're using the wrong criteria right. for the evaluation of whether we should do something? And if it should first start with what are we obligated to right now? Because presumably if we do a good job of putting first things first and making again, the plain things, the main things, then that should be kind of our baseline. And then we fit everything else in underneath and around and behind those things. And that's really what he's causing us to do. So whether you use a lot of different applications, because your system is pretty intense, it's a really good one, but you're like, you've got that down to a science. Like yeah. somebody needs to do something to, we've talked about this, like the dream, incorporate all of them. That's the promised land, isn't it? Yeah. That there would just be one solution to all that stuff. But the bottom line is whether you use a bullet journal or Google Calendar, or any combination of lots of different applications that gets you there. The important thing is that we start thinking about getting there. And again, what a time to be alive that there are so many things that we can use to help us in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think you're absolutely right, is that everybody needs to develop their own system, right? The system that I use, it's funny because I've described it to you and I think it's like the best thing in the world. I think that's like, <laughs> I don't know why everyone doesn't do this. Well, the answer that why everyone doesn't do this is because I'm a little neurotic and it takes a little bit of ner like neuroticism to make this thing work for me. But it works for me. Like I'm able to maintain and keep up on things that I want to do, which I have a lot of things that I want to do. But right. the reason that I can accomplish the things I, I want to do is because I've got this system that works for me. And so whether it's the Eisenhower matrix, whether you plug everything into your Eisenhower matrix, right? It's funny if you actually go to the Eisenhower matrix website, which is funny that there's an Eisenhower matrix website, they break up these four quadrants into do first, schedule as so like there's the first quadrant you do it right now if it's urgent and important you do it right now if it's urgent but not or if it's important but not urgent then you put it on your calendar you you plan for when you're going to do it and then you do it when you planned it if it's uh not urgent but it is important well then you delegate that to someone else right or if it's if it's urgent but not important you delegate that to someone else. You give it to someone else to do. And if it's not important and it's not urgent, you just crossed off your list and it doesn't matter that you didn't do it. But again, whatever process or plan or or hermeneutic you use, whether it's a pre-built one like the, the Eisenhower matrix or whether you kind of like hack together your own system like I've done, it's important to do that. One of the things that I, I think we've recommended in the past, maybe not recommended, but mentioned in the past is, um, I'm going to forget his name, David, what's his face? David from Getting Things Done. Ah. Oh. Now, now that I said forget it, anyways, there's a productivity methodology called getting things done that I think can be really helpful for everybody. And um, basically the idea is if, you can, if you've got a task you have to do, do it. If, it. if you can do it in three minutes or less, just do the task. Um, and, and if you can't do it, then write it down, externalize it from your brain and plug it into whatever your system is. And, right. you know, like I said, we didn't go through all of the steps that David Murray talks about. He talks about auditing your time. He talks about doing like a nightly review or a weekly review of the things that you've done. The bullet journal. I've read most of the bullet journal method and it didn't actually like I already was doing most of those things in this digital version. So I didn't I'm not doing that. But the bullet journal is a good way to sort of start some of this productivity stuff. But getting things done is helpful because so many times 
we we struggle with what to do next. We struggle with what tasks to do. This happens sometimes. I'm a scheduling secretary and scheduling secretaries at hospitals. If you've ever had that experience where you thought that the doctor was going to call you to schedule an appointment and then they don't, here's what happened. Their scheduler got a hundred different requests for, for a hundred different patients. And there's too many, there's too much stimulation. There's too much stimulus. And a lot of times what happens is you've got four different lists of tasks to do. And so all of your energy is just spent in figuring out what the next task to do is. So you never actually get around to doing a task. It's all like sorting your work and categorizing your work and figuring out your work. Well, if you actually take the time to do that, then instead of trying to figure out the one, what the next task is, you've got a system of some sort that feeds that next task to you. So right. there, there are all sorts of productivity methods out there. Some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad. Most of them, you're not going to be able to just pick up and do kind of out of the box. You're going to have to modify them to, to work for you. Uh, getting things done is almost a religious philosophy when you read his book. So like he, he wants you to literally spend time externalizing every single thought that yes. you have in your mind into right. this system. That's not realistic for most people. It really just isn't. Um, but the principle of I shouldn't try to just remember what I have to do or remember what's coming up in the future. I should actually like let let a computer or a date book or some sort of uh, external source manage that for me and maintain all that information. That's actually a really good principle. Um, you know, so I think, I think, like I said, you have to, you have to plan stuff. You have to think it out. It's funny. Once in a while, I'll get a message from someone who is, uh, starting a new podcast or is, or has a podcast and is kind of struggling to, to put out content on time, or they're, they're wondering like, should I keep doing this? And they'll ask me like, how is it that you and Jesse have done 230 it's ironic that i'm saying this now but how is it that you guys have done 229 episodes and you never have missed a week and my answer 100 percent of the time is it's just on the calendar it's just part right. of the schedule like it would we would we would have to uh intentionally skip a session and that's happened we're like i get sick or jesse gets sick and that the fact that it's on the calendar means that I don't just go, well, I guess we're not going to do it this week. What it means is I go, I've got this item on my calendar. We can't do it at this time. What am I going to do with it? And it's funny because sometimes like today, Jesse mentioned, you know, we, we went back and forth on when we were going to schedule. It was at this time. And like, no, we're going to do it tomorrow. I oh, know tonight opened up. Well, no, I got to go do this thing. Every single time that Jesse texted me, and was like, well, no, let's do it tomorrow at this time. I moved the calendar item. Right. And I moved it again and Jesse accepted it. And that may seem really silly when Jesse texts and says, all right, let's do tonight at six o'clock. It might be like, well, why am I going to move the calendar item? We know it's tonight at six o'clock. Well, the fact that it was tonight at six o'clock means that it's tonight at six o'clock. And so I have a commitment. It's visualized. It's externalized. All of that is important in fulfilling the commitment. And I would say the number one reason we've been able to consistently put out a podcast every single week is because it's just part of the schedule. It's built in. The time is dedicated. It's on the calendar three or four weeks in advance, at least not only what we're doing like that, we're doing a podcast, but roughly at least through this bookcast series, like what, what the subject is. So it's funny. There were times when we were doing the preaching cast series 
on Joel Beakey's reform preaching that I got to, got to Sunday when we we're going to record. And I was like, Oh no, the, the podcast is in like an hour and I haven't read the book yet. Well, I learned through that. Now I put in my little system that a prerequisite for recording on Sunday for a book cast is that I have to read the chapter. So the system tells me, Hey, don't forget to read the chapter dummy. Cause you're going to be talking about it at six o'clock tonight. So it, it's important to do that. And one thing that I want to not make sure we miss, and we're not going to talk about it cause we're already past time, but this should not be used as a way to simply try to cram an over an already overly full schedule into some system to try to recuperate that time. None of this will work if you're not willing to pare down stuff. There are times where I look in my little system. This has happened multiple times over the last uh, the last three or four months where I look in my little system and I realize that this book that I thought I was going to start is constantly coming up on my you don't have time for this list. So I have a choice to either pull other stuff off the list and make it have time or I have a choice to take that book off the list. And there's been multiple times I've said, I just don't have time to start this book right now. I don't have time to, to order this book from the publisher to write a review for it. So I'm going to take that off my list. The purpose of these systems is not just to, to try to whittle in, to crush in more stuff. It's to actually be able to see and plan appropriately what you have time to do and, and to plan time to do it. And this, of course brings us right back to the beginning where I said that if the episode isn't posted early Wednesday morning, then you know that Tony's in a taken situation Yes, and you ought to be concerned. I have him. a particular set of skills that makes me a nightmare for people who don't know how to do time management, <laughs> which was in apparently final, me this last week, which is I, super ironic that this podcast episode came up the one week after I, I, it and is, it, although, it and this is exactly delayed. what it was. I did this refresh <laughs> on my app to, to put things into the future to make it look cleaner, to get it all cleaned up. And I, I had this whole list of things that I just forgot to do because they didn't come up in my task management app. So like literally, this is a perfect example of why this kind of stuff and consistency in whatever plan you make is super important because it will it, like that's how you make space for yourself. And it feels silly, but like planning space to relax on your calendar is important because that's how you make the space to it. We all love to think like, Oh yeah, it's going to happen organically. You know, those spontaneous date nights that we used to do when we were first dating, like all of that stuff that's going to keep happening. Like, well, no, it's not like, it's just not going to keep happening as we get busier. That's one thing that in the beginning of this chapter, he makes a point. We didn't talk about it yet. He talks about how like his two-year-old son has no commitments and then like the high school, David Murray had some more commitments, but not, not really no commitments. And then, you know, in college, it gets a little bit worse. You start your first job. You don't have any kids yet. It gets a little bit worse. It gets a little bit worse. And then all of a sudden we've got this crushing uh, weight of accumulated responsibilities and accumulated commitments that we didn't even realize was crushing us. That's when he's talking about, you know, reduce in this chapter. That's what he's talking about. Is we need to sort of like strip that back and reevaluate what that is. And once we get to a point where we're, we've got a bearable load, we have to learn let to your point. We have to learn to say no to the stuff that doesn't fit. And if we need to fit something, that means we have to take something else out. You can't just cram it in. It doesn't work that way. Ultimately the challenge in this chapter is one that Dr. Murray has been building all along. And that is how relevant is what you believe 
how applicable is your theology in your day-to-day life? That's yeah. the challenging part here because most of the time our conversations are about sometimes more heady topics where we talk about our understanding of the scriptures and our way of labeling and systematizing what the scriptures teach. And yet what makes this so different from a lot of things we talk about is our willingness to do the hard work to actually try to apply this day-to-day in the time that we spend, the way that yeah. we spend our time. I think you said it best. Like you said, like this may sound silly. And I think a lot of people make it would say that like you guys are just being really extreme or you have a penchant for productivity or you're really into that kind of thing. What we're saying here is what is the Christian's responsibility to not do more things, but to do the work of God in a way that's profound and loving and efficacious. Yeah. And that what if, what if, if you believe that God has created you to do certain things then how serious do you take that with the way that you order your days? Yeah. So this is a really deep challenge. And I would encourage everybody as they're listening to us to not to shy away from it, to even as you turn this off or you go about your day, to even in your mind say you're going to set aside some, set aside some time to think about this. The best way for you to do that is to track along with us in this book. And we hope that you'll continue to do that. Again, at the end of this whole series, we're going to give away a copy of Dr. Murray's book. But the whole point of that is that you might gift it to somebody who you might know would be really benefited by this. And then maybe to kind of come alongside them in the journey as you've had the heads up to process some of this already by way of the podcast we've been doing and hopefully reading it yourself. But the goal is not to be like better Christians or do more things or to like be better at service. To, but, but to have a deeper commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ and, and to really match up what we say we believe with what we do. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's a good way to, to close out the episode. You know, I, I, I love how practical this book has, has been, but I also love how surprising a lot of these chapters are because he takes a different direction and a different approach. So don't, don't, you know, if you, if you haven't bought the book yet and you're looking at the table of contents and you're like, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever, like this is just really straightforward. Every single week, Jesse and I have had the same experience where we right. start the chapter and we're like, yeah, I get it. Like you got to learn to say no to things. And then you get done and you're like, whoa, like I need to learn to say no to things. Like, like right. it's a totally more, it's a way more profound experience than I anticipated reading this book. So check it out. You can pick it up anywhere you get books. Uh, David Murray, as far as I know, has not been canceled from uh, Amazon yet. Uh, he apparently has not been offensive enough in his productivity methods. Uh, I just, I just went like full James White for a second there. Yeah, that just took a turn. Yeah, that was not a joke I anticipated making. I guess it's I'm, I'm living the summoned life apparently. So Jesse, <laughs> since we're already 18 minutes past our 60 minute podcast episode, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.